Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us for our Policy Pulse, a conversation with U.S. Special Envoy Julie D. Fisher about the crisis in Belarus. Please welcome our host, Alexis Murachek, our Research Associate for Russia and Eurasia in Heritage's Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, we have a special guest, Special Envoy for Belarus, Julie D. Fisher. Following confirmation by the Senate, Julie Fisher last December was sworn in as the first U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Belarus since 2008. Earlier this year, she was appointed Special Envoy for Belarus and in that position is based in Vilnius, Lithuania. Special Envoy Fisher most recently served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Europe and the EU in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. Before that, she was the Deputy Permanent Representative of the U.S. Mission to NATO Chief of Staff to the Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources and Director of the State Department's Operations Center. From 2011 to 2013, in support of the NATO Secretary General, Ambassador Fisher was detailed to NATO's international staff as Deputy Director of the Private Office. She has served in assignments at U.S. embassies in Tbilisi, Georgia, Kiev, Ukraine, and Moscow, Russia, as well as tours at the National Security Council, the Bureaus for European Affairs and Near Eastern, Eastern Affairs, and as a member of the Secretary of State's Executive Secretariat staff. A career member of the Senior Foreign Service, Ambassador Fisher attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she majored in Russian and East European Studies. She earned her Master's in Public Policy degree at the School of International and Public Affairs at Princeton University. She speaks both Russian and French. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Alexis. It's a real pleasure to join you. And um, Ambassador, I believe you have some um, remarks that you would like to give at the beginning. Oh, sure, sure. Sorry, I'll jump right into it. Um, <laughs> look, I, I think maybe the best place to start is um, a little bit of, of where we are today on Belarus and where um, where there is more attention and more work that is needed um, and and where it is we actually think we can get. So I have been on the Belarus beat, as you said, Alexis, since um, this time last year when I was confirmed. And I was confirmed, as you noted, to be the ambassador to Belarus, but in fact, am filling a very different role as special envoy. And really, this has everything with the political crisis that has resulted in Belarus since the fraudulent elections uh, in August of 2020. And fundamentally, all of the challenges we have seen emerging from Belarus um, that that I think many of those who are joining us will know well, right? The Obviously, the migrant crisis has been front and center on so many people's minds, but also the uh, the Ryanair incident May 23rd of this year, um, you know, the, the human rights violations, the um, outrageous um, growing number of political prisoners that are being held in Belarus. All of this fundamentally relates back to the August 2020 election. That is the root cause uh, of all of this um, repression and transnational repression that, that Lukashenko has been bringing to the fore. 
this is uh, fundamentally Lukashenko is a ruler who, having been in place for 27 years and facing a contest in 2020, um, where he really found some serious competition. Um, and 2020 was in every way a test for Lukashenko. He had been opening up uh, Belarus. He had been making space for civil society, for a growing IT sector. He had been engaging with his neighbors and the West, uh, looking to see if, if uh, there was an opportunity to modernize Belarus and move beyond the Soviet economy that has dominated Belarus even in the years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, fundamentally, when faced with some very serious competition last summer, uh, rather than face the competition in a fair election, he decided he would uh, fall back on the usual tactics in Belarus, which is to deny them registration, to put them in jail, um, and to then um, uh, cook the election on election day. That is, that is what brought so many Belarusians out uh, following that election. There is uh, so much that we can talk about with Belarus and its trajectory since independence in the early 90s. Um, and it is really important, I think, when we think about Belarus, it is not simply a question of the violence and repression that has occurred in the last year and a half since the, the pre-election campaign, but truly, you know, the story about Belarus um, since 1991 um, is one of deferred, delayed progress that, you know, this is a country that is sort of the last bubble of Soviet economics still at work. And in so many ways, when we look at how Lukashenko um, governs Belarus, you know, we find antecedents in the 30s, um, certainly not in the modern, modern era. And it is um, in every way, Belarus is, is an anachronism right at the heart of Europe that is a threat to its neighbors, it is a threat to its own people. Um, and therefore, that is why in my role as special envoy, I am engaging um, so directly with our allies and with our partners um, to think about how it is that we can address this political crisis uh, so that so that Belarus is, is not a threat to its own people and to its neighbors. Uh, I spend a lot, as you noted, I'm in Vilnius. I've just returned uh, from Riga today. Uh, I spend a good deal of time um, with other ambassadors who find themselves in a somewhat similar situation to what I am in. Uh, I'm certainly not the only one that uh, Lukashenko has decided he doesn't want in Minsk. There are plenty of others, including Polish, Lithuanian, Latvian. Um, the French ambassador is now a special envoy. Um, the EU ambassador is uh, to Minsk is someone with whom I coordinate closely, and uh, so many others um, who are working in support of a Belarus based on the rule of law, and you know, trying to find a way to get to accountability in Belarus. So maybe that's a, a good place for me to stop. And um, Alexis, I'm really looking forward to, to your questions and hearing what's on your mind. Yes, of course. Well, thank you so much for your remarks. That's a great outline of what's been happening in Belarus over the past year and a half or so. And 
just how the U.S. can respond, the EU, um, NATO, and, and these different entities. Um, but we want to uh -huh. dive a little bit deeper into what has been happening in Belarus recently um, with the migrant crisis. I was wondering if you could um, go into a little more detail about that. Sure. I, you know, the migrant crisis as such is one um, that really bears paying attention to. And, um, you know, I know how closely at Heritage you and your colleagues are are following questions of European security. So I, I really want to focus particularly on the, the migrant crisis in particular, because this is, to my mind, and, uh, you know, as you noted, I, I've spent a fair bit of time at NATO. Um, this effort, in my mind, is a very um, textbook hybrid effort, right? It, this is um, this is a, a an adversary. Uh, this is a this is a leader who, in fact, decided he certainly wasn't going to do anything that was direct hostility. He wasn't going to engage in direct hostilities of forces against his neighbors. Um, what he decided he would do is try to go at the seams that exist in the West, right? So he would try to separate Lithuania from Poland, Poland from Lithuania. Um, uh, he understands that the migrant issue has been one that inside the European Union, they've wrestled with this question. Um, so, you know, separating uh, member states, dividing member states within the European Union, dividing the European Union from NATO, um, and fundamentally, this is exactly the kind of effort that we need to be alert to, that we need to recognize and understand, because, you know, I believe that uh, for some of those in Minsk who engineered and orchestrated this crisis, what they counted on was an initial response from from uh, Lithuania in the first case, because really this effort went towards Lithuania first. Uh, they counted on the West saying, you know, sort of splintering a bit w with those most concerned about the the rights of migrants saying, you know, calling for Lithuania and Poland to uphold their international obligations, which uh, I believe they have. Uh, and, uh, you know, to be able to sort of call them out for rejecting uh, these migrants, even though, in fact, this wave of migration was not the natural um, path or transit routes that, that these individual migrants chose, but in fact, it was Lukashenko who lured them to Belarus under the false promise uh, of, of uh, entry into the European Union, something he had no ability to offer them. Um, but, you know, in fact, he generated the crisis. So this is... Um, you know, in the humanitarian angle, it is unmistakable, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to shortchange the humanitarian angle about of this, but I think it's important to acknowledge that Lukashenko's very callous approach to the lives of these migrants, as we saw people freezing in the forests um, just you know weeks uh, ago, um, you know it reflects the same callousness with which he approaches his own people. And fundamentally, this crisis was generated because the political crisis inside Belarus remains unresolved. And it will remain unresolved until Lukashenko takes several basic steps, until he unconditionally uh, releases the political prisoners, until he engages in a meaningful dialogue 
with those in the democratic forces, those who were so successful in last summer's election. And that dialogue leading ultimately to a new election under international observation. Those are the steps that are needed to resolve the political crisis. These other actions like the migrant crisis, like Ryanair, these are uh, symptomatic of that crisis at home in Belarus. Absolutely. Yes, those are very good points that you make. And this migrant crisis has actually been building up since the summer, um, in which a lot of Americans, I feel like, don't realize. And I feel like uh -huh. this will only continue to, it'll build up, I think, in the coming weeks ahead. Um, how do you think these events particularly will affect European security and the NATO alliance in the weeks and months ahead? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I, I think, Alexis, that, you know, NATO and the EU are proving um, their readiness to respond to this crisis. I, I would note that um, in, on the EU's side, right, the, the deployment of the, the mobilization of Frontex, uh, first to Lithuania and now as um, the EU is, is working with Poland um, to address the migrant issue on the EU's border, right? First and foremost, right? This is an EU competency and it is absolutely essential to look at this, not simply as the border of um, Poland or the border of Lithuania, but as Europe's border. And I think Europe has done a very good job of surging that support and delivering the important political messages. Just a week ago, right before the Riga summit, um, Secretary General Stoltenberg and NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg and um, EU Commission President von der Leyen traveled together um, to Lithuania um, and to the region to show their support um, in the face of Belarus's aggression. And that is incredibly important. That solidarity between EU and NATO on an issue, right? A migration crisis is an EU competency, and that matters a lot in these contexts. Which, which job belongs to which organization is incredibly important. But the EU's frontier is also, in this case, NATO's frontier. And so, um, you know, it is absolutely essential that we recognize the hybrid element to this and that we learn from it and that we take some lessons that we're gonna put to work in the future. So I, I think there is something incredibly important for European security in the longer term here. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, I guess to sort of um, zoom out, how does this orchestrated border crisis between Belarus and the EU connect to the Belarusian presidential election um, that occurred last year in August? Because I feel like a lot mm -hmm. of um, people who could be joining us online they might not know the the bigger context of what happened in Belarus last year. Um, so if mm -hmm. you can um, mm -hmm. more detail about that, that would be great. Sure. So in the context of last summer's election, you know, 2020 in Belarus, I, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that that election was maybe not dissimilar from other elections around the world. It was taking place at the height of COVID, right? And uh, in, in, in particularly, in, in particular at a time when governments were really struggling around the world to grasp COVID, to grasp uh, COVID response. There were, uh, Lukashenko notably um, dismissed COVID uh, as a serious concern. He also encouraged Belarusians to drink more vodka and ride more tractors, right? That was his prescription. Um, he famously had COVID and attended a, um, an event with thousands of people where he, you know, it was no, he knew 
they knew, everybody knew he had COVID, uh, no um, willingness to, to do anything about it. This was on top of a growing sense that the government fundamentally was not accountable to the people of Belarus. And uh, it, not just, I think that Belarusians have understood that for decades, but it was, you know, the ways in which the government was failing to serve the needs of individuals was becoming increasingly apparent as candidates like C.R. Tsikhanouski, um, had, who had a, a YouTube channel, right? This isn't uh, that he launched his own television station and, you know, was well funded and financed, right? He was running a, a, a video blog on YouTube and talking to ordinary people about ordinary problems. And it was shining that spotlight that became um, untenable. It, 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 he developed um, a real popularity. Uh, another candidate, Victor Babarica, who uh, was head of, he was head of a bank, a very different kind of person than Sikanuski. And Babarica was, um, again, you know, really presenting as a candidate who could help modernize this very Soviet, post-Soviet economy that, that uh, Belarus has. And people saw a lot of opportunity in terms of the message that he was offering. Um, Lukash, there was another candidate who was a former diplomat who also had a very active uh, campaign reaching out to ordinary citizens and speaking to their needs. Um, so all of this resulted in Lukashenko denying their registration as candidates and putting them in prison. When all of this happened, the um, the campaigns essentially came together, even though their candidates were behind bars, uh, the campaigns came together and decided they would stand together in support of uh, Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, the wife of the first candidate that I mentioned, um, and that they would visibly stand together, these three campaigns, represented, in fact, by three women. Um, and they were each of them accidental, unintentional politicians, right? Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya became the leader of this movement, not because she spent a lifetime wanting to be a political actor. She is, um, she is a mother. She, is, uh, she has a background as a teacher, as an interpreter. She did this because her husband was in prison. And if we look back at last summer, it, it's, you know, her, her discomfort with the role of presidential candidate was, you know, it was clear this was not something she had sought for herself. And, you know, the, and Lukashenko probably only allowed her to run because he couldn't conceive of a young woman mounting a, 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 an effective campaign against him. And in fact, you know, she spoke in every way as the polar opposite of Alexander Lukashenko, generationally, um, you know, in terms of her own personal experience. She, you know, she could not be more directly opposite of who Alexander Lukashenko is. Uh, and that, in fact, is what, what moved a nation. And that is what made people turn out to vote. And then when the people saw that those votes were not counted, when they understood how fraudulently the election had been conducted. And let me maybe just say a quick word about that, right? It's, it's not that there's a question of 
a couple of spoiled ballots or uh, one one report of an anomaly, um, you know, there's a massive amount of evidence about how fraudulent these elections were. Video evidence, recorded evidence, um, literally videos of people carrying ballots out windows down ladders. And it like, it would be a comedy movie if it was a movie. And, um, and so that is what brought hundreds of thousands of Belarusians out to the street. And when that happened, Lukashenko decided he could not live with that. And he turned his security forces loose and he turned them loose on his own people. The torture and the violence that was inflicted upon them is um, in many ways unimaginable. Weaponizing COVID in the prisons, um, the beatings, the evidence of torture that has emerged um, is um, truly shocking. Um, Lukashenko and his forces have gone after people who wear red and white. He has, you know, people who literally had the most minor tangential connections even to this movement, but might have been in in uh, geographic proximity, have been arrested and sentenced. Um, there have been no cases opened against the police, not one not one. Uh, more than 4,500 um, uh, cases have been brought against protesters. There's more than 900 political prisoners today. So the, um, the violence that has ensued is not something that has merely motivated Sikhanuskaya and all of those who have been driven into exile. But in fact, we have seen incredibly strong bipartisan reaction out of, out of Congress. Um, we have two groups, one on the Senate side and one on the House side, that have been established, the Friends of Belarus Caucasus. Um, we have seen in, in European capitals a tremendous amount of support. They were the first ones to um, receive Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, even, again, even at the height of COVID, even before vaccines, um, you know, to hear from her directly about what what Belarusians need from the West in order to make progress uh, for themselves. So uh, I apologize, Alexis, if that's much more than what you wanted, but um, th th I'm trying to give you a sense of just how severe the conduct of the elections was uh, last year. No, that was great, Ambassador. Thank you so much for going into mm -hmm. your great and wonderful explanation about that. Um, so you've been U.S. Ambassador and Special Envoy for Belarus since December of last year. So this month mm -hmm. marks one year. Um, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, there have been many people in Belarus repressed um, just for protesting peacefully or trying to run in opposition to Lukashenko. And I know that you personally have been affected by the Lukashenko regime. How exactly has mm -hmm. your role changed um, over the past year since you began as U.S. Ambassador and then Special Envoy? It's um, I appreciate the question and I, I'm happy I will I will address it, but I will tell you that I think the question of how it's affected me is a lot less important than how it's affected the people of Belarus and how it has affected, um, you know, just ordinary citizens who uh, who are facing this incredible level of repression um, as they attempt to do their jobs, go to work, go to school, 
um, it, it is inescapable in Belarus. As much as Lukashenko likes to paint the picture that everything is normal, you know, more than 270 NGOs um, have been shuttered, journalists arrested, um, media outlets shuttered. Um, it is, uh, in, there are activists who have died at the hands of the regime in prison um, as a result of their activities. So, you know, my role, yes, it's changed. And I thought this time last year that I would, you know, if if we did uh, a video conference, we would be talking today about positive developments in Minsk. And, uh, you know, I would be talking to you from Minsk and, and telling you about the, the progress that they've made. In fact, in every way, Lukashenko, since this time last year, has has taken steps away from engagement, taken steps back from the West, take, you know, shown he's unwilling to engage in those steps that are needed uh, to move Belarus forward. Um, this time last year, Alexis, there were 155 political prisoners. And today, Vyasna, the human rights organization, um, which does such incredible work in terms of research and accounting for individuals um, in Belarus. Today, they count for 909 political prisoners, N 909 individuals who are away from their families, who are under uh, some of them in penal colonies, some of them in cells where there's no room to even sit down. They're so overcrowded. Um, almost all of them have been subjected, exposed to COVID with no uh, medical care. Um, it is uh, an incredibly um, stark and deprived experience. Um, so, you know, my adjustment into this role of special envoy, you know, my focus has been and will continue to be to shine, um, to shine a spotlight uh, where we can on what is happening inside Belarus, to um, engage directly with the European Union, with the member states, our allies, with partners, to look for opportunities in ways that we can both hold the regime accountable and find opportunities to make progress, right? We want to do both. I also spend a great deal of my time engaging with those in the democratic movement who are outside of Belarus. Um, and and that is um, that is particularly inspiring. And it is, uh, I think, incredibly important work to recognize Belarus is not a problem set that exists within its own borders anymore. Belarus is really a challenge that spills well beyond um, to Lithuania, to Latvia, to Poland, um, to Ukraine, right? There's more than 150,000 Belarusians who have fled Belarus for Ukraine. Increasingly, we also see Georgia as a destination. Absolutely. Well, that's a very good point that you bring up. And I think looking forward, um, we would love to see hope of Belarus becoming a de democratic nation one day. And I just want to ask you personally, do you think there is hope of Belarus becoming a democratic nation one day? Absolutely. I, I, absolutely, there is hope. Um, I, and I think it's so important um, that, particularly from the United States, right, that that we recognize this is not an interminable situation. Um, right now, we understand the economic 
situation inside Belarus is absolutely unsustainable. Um, the political crisis is unsustainable, um, despite, again, this veneer of normalcy that Lukashenko would like to paint to his own citizens. It is not sustainable, and he knows it. So, um, you know, the question is, what will give and when? And I think that the democratic forces led by Svetlana Tsikhanouskaya, but really, there's an enormous, enormously impressive team um, that are members of the Coordination Council. And they are, again, they're in Warsaw, they're in Vilnius, they're in other capitals, um, all of them working to generate ideas, um, ideas about Belarus's future, you know, how to paint the picture of what Belarus can be with a more modern economy, to paint a picture where Belarus has um, neighborly relations with all of the states that it borders. Um, there is a real opportunity to consider how different life can be for the citizens of Belarus um, when they, when the people of Belarus have a say in how they are governed. And I believe we will get there. Um, and it, it may not be an overnight um, uh, transition that is one day the old and the next day the new. It may be a transition that, that happens more slowly over time. But I do believe that Belarus will get there. And I know that the people of Belarus, it's where they want to be. I completely agree. Well, um, I think that wraps up our time. Unfortunately, we don't have time for more questions. But the Ambassador, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an honor having you on to discuss these important issues. Thank you, Alexis. It's a real pleasure to join you. And it's a real pleasure for me to, to, to do an event with Heritage. So thanks very much. Thank you so much. And thank you all to, to you online for joining us.